Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, welcome along to today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Uh, every week here on The Profile, we bring you an interview with a leading Christian in some walk of faith and life. And we do it in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you want to find more interviews with interesting people, you'll find it every month there in the magazine. You can ask for a free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Well, my guest on the show today is Michael Brown. He's a Messianic Jew, well known in the USA for his radio show, The Line of Fire, and uh, participating in numerous debates on things like Judaism, sexuality, the charismatic movement. Also the author of books such as A Queer Thing Happened to America, The Real Kosher Jesus, and Authentic Fire, a response to John MacArthur's Strange Fire, which gives you a sense of the range of different topics that Michael uh, puts his hat in the ring for. His latest book, though, is titled Donald Trump is Not My Saviour, an evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. So this should be an interesting one. Michael, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. Thanks, Justin. It's really fun to have you. Um, I've followed your ministry for a long time and you're obviously uh, out there on social media and websites and so on. So a lot of people I imagine familiar with you, but maybe not so much with your backstory. And maybe that's where we'll begin today. All right. So I'm Jewish, born in New York City, 1955. My dad was the lead attorney in the New York Supreme Court. Mom and dad happily married. We moved to Long Island when I was seven years old. But we were conservative Jews, which does not mean moral conservatism, mm-hmm. social conservatism. It's just a branch of Judaism. But what I was raised in was not a religious Judaism. So we, we'd go for the high holy days. Okay. The synagogue would be packed out. We'd have several hundred people there. But an average Sabbath, you'd barely get 10 men there. But kind of like a nominal Christian might go exactly. Christmas, Easter, but exactly. not really. So I fully understood I was a Jew. Mm-hmm. I went to school with other kids. But in my mind, Gentile, Christian, Catholic, that was all s- synonymous. There was just okay. us and them. But we were all friends, hung out. I started playing drums when I was eight, which I mentioned because I really got into the whole rock scene. Mm. Beatles came to America when I was nine, just wow. to give you a social context. <laughs> so I was born mitzvah at 13, but it was much more of a social event for me. It didn't have spiritual depth mm. to me. Mm. Later that year, November of 68, when I was 13, I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert. Wow. And that was kind of a formative spiritual event yeah. because there, there was a power to it. And yeah. suddenly I wanted to be like them and be in a rock band and all this. So mm. when I was 14 and someone asked if I wanted to try getting high, I thought, well, I mean, number one, you're not supposed to do it. So the forbidden <laughs> of Proverbs, you know, stolen water is sweet, mm. right? So I'm not supposed to do it. That made it appealing. Mm. But then the rock stars do it. Exa- absolutely. So I smoked pot, nothing happened. What? <laughs> so I went to a harder drug. I smoked hash. Nothing happened. I didn't realize my body was somehow wired to have a high resistance to drugs. Oh. So very quickly, because I, I was curious, yeah, well, what's yeah, going on? Yeah. I started doing other drugs, harder ups drugs. and downs yeah, and, okay. and hallucinogenic drugs. By the time I was 15, I started shooting heroin. Wow. And I became known as Drug Bear and Iron Man because my whole identity was I'm this rock drummer, you know, good, playing well for my age, playing in a band. We're going to be this great band one day. And I use these massive quantities of drugs. Gosh. So just... And I was, I was so full of rebellion, so full of anger, so full of sin. But I thought, we're doing great. And, and, and you presumably had the long hair and the rock star look. Oh, and, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Have but, you still got photos from that oh, era? Yes, sir. <laughs> if, if folks get online and just search from LSD to PhD. Okay. And then put my name in, they'll get one as my hair was growing long. It got longer <laughs> than that. But my wife, Nancy, whom I met 
two and a half years after I became a believer, she was a hardcore Jewish atheist when we met. Oh. Some years after that, she saw a picture of me from before I was saved. And she started laughing. I said, you're <laughs> laughing because I look like a woman. She said, no, I'm laughing because you look like an ugly woman. <laughs> so that was me. So, well, well, tell us, uh, yeah, because that book title is fabulous. But how did you get from LSD to PhD? And more importantly, to being a follower of Jesus. Yeah, so what happened was, 71, my two best friends, the guys I played in the band with, they started uh, seeing, the, well, they were friendly with these two girls whose uncle was a Pentecostal pastor, whose dad had been praying for them for years. So the girls started going to the church. My friends started going to hang out with the girls, but said, there's this really cool church. And, and, and they were nominal, one Russian Orthodox, the other Methodist, completely nominal. And, 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 and the church started a lot about prophecy in the end times. And we'd literally be sitting around getting high, uh, uh, high on drugs. And they'd say to me, yeah, there's going to be a beast with seven heads and 10 horns is going to come out of a bottomless pit. We're sitting there hallucinating like, <laughs> wow, that's in the Bible? But God started to change them. So I thought, enough is enough. It's going to tear our band apart. This is the way we're living. Drugs, rock, this is the whole th scene here. So August of 71, I went to my first church service there. And young, a young lady then who, who knew me from high school wrote down in her diary, Antichrist comes to church. I, I just saw her a few weeks ago and she, she remembers well writing it down. So I wasn't just a drug user. I was, I was a, rebel, a rebel. I was angry and I was going to pull them out. Well, I, I thought, okay, fine. You have your way. I have mine, whatever. But they began to pray for me. I didn't know they were praying for me. I didn't know what conviction of sin was. But the very sins I was boasting about yesterday, today, oh, conviction. Wow. I, I, did, I felt uncomfortable. I, I used to steal money from my own father. If, you know, a friend needed a little help. Mm. I took some cash. And I felt like the worst wretch on the planet for doing that. And I didn't know what was going on. I tried using different drugs so I wouldn't stay up at night. And it was them praying for me. Finally, November of 71, I went back to a service. And I, I just felt I, I should go. And at the end of the service, the, the pastor gave an altar call. And my friend nudged me like, you, know, you should go up. And I thought, you know, these people, they're praying for me because I found that out now. Yeah, yeah. And they, they think I'm like the worst of sinners. So I'll just go up just to do it. <laughs> but at, my friends have been witnessing to me day and night for months. And, and we were talking gospel. Something was planted in my heart. Mm. As I said the words, confessing, I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I, I said, you know, I, I actually do. I'm not just saying this. I, I believe it's true. <laughs> and, and then the pastor said, you know, and I promise to live for you the rest of my life. And I said the words, and I said, okay, God, I have a problem here. Because you know when I go home, I'm shooting cocaine. You know I'm doing that. And I'm using this other drug first, angel dust, PCP. I mean, I had the whole thing planned out. And I said, if you don't want me to, because I'm brand new, remember, don't know anything. If you don't want me to, when I put the drugs in my arm, don't let anything happen. And sure enough, I get home, I smoke a large dose of this one thing that should just almost floor you, and then shoot a large amount of cocaine, and nothing happens. I mean, for a second, my heart started to pound, and nothing. So I thought, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> the next five weeks, I was in the battle for my life, shooting heroin one day, in church the next, back and forth, and finally, December 17th of 71, I went to a service. Now remember, I was, I saw Led Zeppelin, I saw The Who, I saw The Grateful Dead, I saw Hendrix Twice, I saw The Doors, I saw Janis Joplin, I saw Jefferson Airplane, all the bands. Mm. I live for these rock mm. concerts, mm. day and night, for a couple of years now, right? And playing with my rock band. The loudest music you can imagine. Dazed and confused, purple haze, mm. right? Now I'm in this little church with a piano player. There, you know, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low and, and make me a blessing and blessed assurance. And I get overcome with a joy 
that was completely indescribable. Nothing you'd experienced no, at the rock concert. No, and, and you know, just like you have an accident and your life passes yeah, before you. Yeah. Well, in a moment, I thought of all the highs, all the mm. drug highs, all the music highs, all the highs just from friendship, from mm. doing good, from sports, from, and I thought, this is qualitatively different. This must be what they call the joy of the Lord. <laughs> and at that moment, I had this mental picture that I was filthy from head to toe, and Jesus washed me and cleansed me, put these beautiful white robes on me, and now I was going back out and playing in the mud. And I said, Lord, I will never put a needle in my arm again. And that was it, I was free. That was it. Completely free from that night on. Two days after that, I said, I'll never get high anymore. And then my dad said, Michael, it's great that you're off drugs, but we're Jews, we don't believe this. That led to dialogue with rabbis, which led to me learning Hebrew and hence getting the doctorate in yeah. Semitic languages so I could better interact and understand these things and have solid intellectual academic responses. But that's how the journey that's began. That's how the journey began. What a story, what a story. I mean, obviously, since then, you've learned a great deal. You've um, obviously um, been able to have those dialogues and debates with people who aren't Christians, who are Jewish and so on. Um, how how difficult is it in your experience to bring Jewish people the light of Christ in that sort of way? I guess it depends on where each individual is on their own journey. Yes. Uh, on the one hand, there's a fundamental Jewish resistance to Jesus because Jesus is not for the Jews. Just like if I asked your average Christian, even a nominal Christian, do you believe in Muhammad? No. Do you mm. believe in the Quran? No. Well, have you studied it? No. Do, but he's not for us. That's mm. for the Muslims. Yeah. So in a fundamental way, there is this notion, well, Jesus is for the Christians, not for us. And then there's also church history in, in which the, the church often mistreated and persecuted Jews and paved the way, European Christianity paved the way tragically for the Holocaust. So the more traditional a Jew is, the more antipathy he'll have towards Jesus. Even if he looks at Jesus as just, we don't really know much about him, but many will look at him as the enemy, the deceiver of Israel, etc. Uh, that being said, the great majority of Jews are not traditional. It's a growing number in Israel, mm. uh, but the, the very, very religious Jews, that's still the minority worldwide within Judaism, maybe, maybe 10% of Jews. Many are nominal. Many are searching out in other religions. And in that sense, Jewish people come to faith in Jesus like anybody else. Mm. So if it's just your average person who's more secular, a Jew can come to Jesus like anyone else and might well come to Jesus just in a church setting, mm. hearing the gospel mm. without even any, any Jewish context to it. And, and there's a disproportionate number of Jews in Eastern religion and things like that looking, searching. But for, say, an Orthodox Jew, someone who maybe is very committed to the practices and, and the beliefs, I guess for that person, it's going to be quite a, yes. quite a big deal. Oh, it's massive. I mean, look, they're traditional Jews I've been in dialogue with for decades, and they haven't changed me, but I haven't changed them either. Right. Um, there was a, a rabbi who once said to me, if I could get from a particular religious Jewish group, if I could get one of them that was raised in it their whole life to become a follower of Jesus, that, that he would sell everything he had, give it to me, and become his lifelong servant. Now, here and there, they do come to faith. And there's an mm. increase, it's still a, a, a mm. small remnant, mm. but an increasing uh, remnant, it's tiny, in the ultra, ultra Orthodox circles coming to faith, but it has to be totally secret. Right. If their faith was known, they'd immediately lose everything. If they didn't lose their lives, they would immediately lose everything. And the whole context of their life is, is living in a certain community setting, and that, that would be utterly gone. So it's, it's not just the faith system, it's the lifestyle, it's the community. They would go from, from all of that, so it, it, it would take divine intervention. And, but for you sure. believe there will be a day of divine intervention, oh, yes, don't sir. you? Yes, what, sir. What do you think that will look like? What, 
What yeah. and what do you base that hope on? Okay, so I, I base it on explicit scripture, Romans eleven twenty six, which I'm utterly convinced in context is not talking about the church as Israel or Jews and Gentiles. It, it's speaking about national Israel. The phrase "all Israel," search it out through he, the Hebrew Bible. Mm. It, it's speaking of national Israel that all Israel will be saved on the heels of the fullness of the Gentiles. That Jeremiah thirty one. Uh, one says, on that day, God will be God of all the families of Israel. Uh, pictures like Zechariah 12 of massive repentance uh, in Judah and Jerusalem, uh, looking on the one they've pierced and mourning and wailing, the one they thought was the cause of so much of their suffering, mm. the one whose name they spat mm. is, is going to be the one uh, that they recognize as actually our, our Messiah and Savior. You can imagine how deep the repentance will be. Peter saying in Acts, the third chapter, uh, Jewish repentance will bring the Messiah back. Jesus at the end of the judgments, the seven woes in Matthew 23, saying to Jerusalem, your house is left desolate. You won't see me again until you welcome me as Messiah. Until you say, Baruch haba Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So mm. even though it's a judgment mm. passage, he is saying, yeah. you've got to welcome me before I return. And, and so what do you say to those who do interpret those sorts of passages differently, who say that the church sort of replaces at some level Israel, or, or even that Jesus is, is Israel, that, that Jesus has become, as it were, in the place of Israel? I, I restrain myself from being too strong, <laughs> okay. but say it is 100% contrary to the plain sense of Scripture, completely undoes everything in terms of Jesus fulfilling rather than destroying, and makes a mockery of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds mm. and hundreds of explicit promises that God gave to a specific people about a specific land and about a specific future. And if the church could replace Israel, then something could replace the church. If God's explicit covenantal words restated over and over and over in context, which could only mean one thing, if those could be now replaced by something else or the identity changed, that I make unconditional promises mm -hmm. to Justin and your offspring no matter what for a thousand generations, and then you do something I don't like, and I turn to your colleague and I say, you are now Justin, mm -hmm. then I can't be trusted. Of course, this has ramifications in all kinds of political and social spheres um, and many people are concerned that that view of um, the, the land and everything else obviously plays into the dynamics of um, the issues in Israel and Palestine and so on. Um, I mean, wh where do you go when it comes to the, the long-standing divisions that exist between Jews and Arabs and uh, and all of what's going on in the Middle East there? Is, is that itself a uh, part of the fact that we're going into those kinds of end time sort of scenarios or or how how as, as christians should we seek to mediate those conflicts and those issues yeah so first i i i look to work with those that see the bright future for the salvation of many muslims as well and and that as children of abraham we have a joint destiny and the prophecies like Isaiah 19 that speaks about Egypt and, and Assyria, which would be modern-day Iraq, if, if that's how it's applied, uh, serving together with Israel, Israel being the third part as they all worship Yahweh. So I, I look in the Muslim world as God is moving greatly. And interestingly, many of the Muslim, former Muslims that I meet are passionate lovers of Israel. They grew up hating Israel, but mm. they recognized God's promises. And, and this is something to encourage Christians, that God didn't cast us off for all of our sin forever. He didn't, he didn't destroy us forever. He brought us back to the land by his grace. But to me, it's very simple. I, I see no other answer in terms of the return of the Jewish people other than being God. And, and very simply, just a, a little syllogism, mm. very simple. God said explicitly he was scattering us in his wrath and judgment. All right? 
And, and we know in Scripture that if God blesses, no one can curse. If he curses, no one can bless. If, if, if he wounds, no one can heal. If he heals, no one can wound. If he scatters, no one can regather. If he regathers, no one can scatter. Well, if he scattered us in his wrath, then who regathered us? So the fact that we have been regathered, that there are now more than six million Jews living in Israel, even if you just believe in God's sovereignty in general, he obviously did it, but the same Bible that speaks of God doing it, not because of what we deserve, but because of his grace and because his name is being blasphemed, that same God calls on Israel to act ethically. So as a friend of Israel, as one believing that Israel fulfills prophecy, I can turn to Israel and say, but you must act justly. And this is part of our scriptural heritage, and you must treat the stranger kindly. Mm. The problem that we have to not overlook is that radical Islam does exist, and that, that long before modern Israel was established, there was Islamic hostility towards the Jewish people. So, so that, for example, the uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini, the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a compatriot of Adolf Hitler, which some actually believe gave the suggestion for extermination to Hitler. Mm. So, some historians have actually claimed that. Prime Minister Netanyahu has, has echoed that, that. That he drew on centuries of Islamic anti-Semitism. Uh, there was the idea then that the Arab revolt against Israel would finish what Hitler started. So unfortunately, that is still there yeah. in much of the Muslim world, and that can only be overcome by the gospel. And Israel's presence there does not cause it, it just brings it to the surface. Let's talk about some of the other things that you're known for. Um, you are um, a charismatic Christian, uh, uh, and um, is that something that was there from early on in your Christian journey, an openness to the um, fruits, well, not just the fruits, but the, as it like, manifestations of the Spirit, prophecy, tongues, and that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, so that was my entry. Yeah. In other words, the church where I came to know Jesus was Pentecostal. Mm. And my friends would come back, not just talking about prophecy, but talking about tongues and talking about angels and demons and these different things they were hearing. So it fascinated us. And then uh, not long after being born again, I began to speak in tongues myself and then found that to be wonderful for intimate prayer with God. Is that and, something continues to this day? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, ab absolutely. And for those who aren't familiar with that, who perhaps that's never been an experience they've had, can you in any way encapsulate what happens when you speak in tongues? Yeah, sure. So uh, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 14 as our spirit is praying, that we're speaking mysteries to God, that no one understands it, that we're edifying ourselves, And this way, edifying ourselves, we can now go and minister to others and help mm. others. So initially, there was a sense of something just kind of rising up mm. on the inside that was coming to my lips. So at first, January 24th, 72, okay, what do I do with this? So I, I began to speak words. Anyone could make words up. I go, blah, 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 blah. Anyone can make words up, right? Mm. But I began to feel, okay, something's actually, so the more I just began to speak, I realized my mind can be thinking, meditating on this mm. verse. My mind can be thinking about, are others hearing me? Because mm. there's a little prayer meeting while these words are coming out. So it was something you can control in terms of stop or mm. start but you were not manufacturing the words. So what happens now is I can say, okay, just like I'm speaking in English, mm. or I can say, okay, I'm going to speak in Hebrew. Mm. I can say I'm going to begin to speak in tongues, but then something will well up. It's not words that I'm manufacturing mm. in my mind. I could be in my mind counting one, two, <laughs> three, four, and praying in tongues, but as I do it, especially over a period of time, I, I begin to feel a, a sense of depth of communion with God. I begin to feel a, a certain richness of the Spirit's presence. And then often out of that, my prayer gets very deep. 
I may get tremendously burdened and begin to, to, mm. to groan and weep for a particular subject or situation, or that I may now feel very specifically led to pray in English with my understanding. So it's, it's a spiritual thing mm. that then affects the mind, but in a sense transcends the mind. So it's not, because I think a lot of people have the, the idea that when someone speaks in tongues, somehow they're no longer in control. God's sort of taken over them and they're speaking words and they've got no, but actually that's not the experience of when people who, on a very natural basis, on yeah. a daily basis, speak in tongues. Exactly. It is something that they're in control of, but it's nonetheless, it, it's con- a connection with God that's, that's very Yeah, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, which would apply here as well. Now, I know people that uh, one pastor was telling about his mother, part of a Baptist prayer meeting in the 70s, 60s or 70s, they never heard of tongues. They mm. were at a Baptist prayer meeting together and suddenly they began speaking in tongues. Like, what's this? <laughs> and, and then realized it's in the Bible. Right. Uh, but what's interesting though is that in the late 70s, early 80s, I had left that church. I, I found it to be a little bit too narrow mm-hmm. for me and not broadly theological enough. I was pursuing my, my, my doctoral studies, late 70s, early 80s, exposed to wider ranges of Christianity and found my Pentecostal heritage to be embarrassing. Mm. The tongue, slain in the spirit, praying for the sick, hallelujah, hallelujah. It was I, all a bit hokey and kind yeah, of, yeah. And I wanted, I wanted a more intellectually mm. acceptable faith. Mm. And so I bought books against the charismatic movement. I bought books against tongues. I bought books on counterfeit miracles and, and these various things. And I began to read them and study them. And it had an appeal to me because I could be more accepted now as a, mm, as a mm, scholar and mm. a professor if I wasn't so fundamentalist <laughs> in these things. The problem was I, I found they contradicted scripture. Here I am <laughs> trying to get away from this, but I just found it too clear. And okay, you know, don't forbid speaking in tongues, seek prophecy, praying for the sick, healing. Mm. These should be expected norms. Uh, and you didn't see any reason why that would suddenly stop with the closure of Scripture. No, no. In, in fact, I find quite the opposite, that the Scripture is presupposed and these things continue. And because I'm a sola scriptura guy, because I base everything on Scripture, if I don't find an explicit command in Scripture to override it, then I don't, I don't believe in the Book of Mormon, an outside book, or exterior revelation, a Catholic tradition. If, if it's not in the book... Uh, th- why then do you differ so much from someone like a John MacArthur, for instance, who is also obviously sola scriptura and would say he's very doctrinally and biblically based, but who is a, what we would call cessationist, doesn't believe that the miracles and those manifestations of the spirit are for today. In fact, he wrote a book called Strange Fire, critiqu- critiquing what he sees as, as what you might call um, uh, charismania. <laughs> um, and and you actually wrote a book, I think, responding to to, to that book. So what I mean, you can understand why there's a, a, a certain sort of scepticism around the the more extreme end, at least, of, yeah. of the charismatic. Well, religion. first thing, even though my experience confirms my faith, my faith is not experience based. So in the late 70s, early 80s, I would find when I would really commune with God that it was natural to pray in tongues and I found that intimacy, but that was secondary to me, to scripture. Mm. So even if there were 10,000 people I prayed for today and none were healed, I would still believe God's the healer because scripture Mm. says so. Mm. Even if I saw some crazy TV preacher raising money and speaking in tongues and giving false prophecies, I'd still believe tongues and prophecy were real. The the false wouldn't stop me. So I have the utmost respect for Pastor MacArthur in the midst of our differences. He wrote Strange Fire. I wrote Authentic Fire. In fact, I wrote 300 pages in three weeks. I was so (laughs) moved on to respond. But that being said, 
I would say that on the one hand, he is allowing the negative experiences to color his reading of scripture. Now he claimed probably the opposite mm, for mm, me. Mm. I'm, I'm coloring mine with positive experiences. But perhaps his definition of the gifts based on his understanding of scripture is such that he just doesn't see it happening. In his mind, the apostles could heal anyone at will. That was the gift of healing. That's not how I understand that gift operating. So because he would not see that operating today, he would say it doesn't exist. Mm. Because in his mind, tongues had to be articulate languages uh, that were spoken as opposed to a so-called heavenly language. He hears this, says it's just gibberish. But I welcome the debate. Uh, I've had very few people willing to debate me just based on what Scripture says. And honestly, my own conviction is that before the debates started, it's won already because if you're just using the Bible, you lock yourself alone in the room for 10 years, you don't know anything else, you just read the Bible, you're going to come out expecting these things are for today. I mean, that, but it does bring us to the question of kind of what what is and what isn't sort of of God in in some of these instances. Now, I know that you were quite involved in um, the Brownsville re- revival in Pensacola, and and that very much was tied into what happened in Toronto and the uh, the, the outpouring there and so on. Um, and and that all of that stuff obviously has influenced lots of people and and is quite mainstream in many ways. Um, but at the same time, there have always been those people who have said, "But look." people writhing around on the floor and barking like dogs and and it's it's all unseemly and it's not uh, it, it's not appropriate and and it, so this stuff can't be from god so how do you answer those kinds of criticisms of what people would see as the sort of the extreme end of, of yeah so i'd answer it on three levels first 90 percent of what people rejected at brownsville never happened okay like barking like dogs for for example you know or those kinds of things just never saw it never dream of seeing it mm. it didn't relate to anything within the sphere of what we did ever mm. ever and i was in thousands between services and teaching and all that endless numbers of meetings so but that's typical of, of revival movements that the great great majority of the opposition is based on misinformation the the second thing is on, on what do we base our views Jonathan Edwards had to deal with these issues in the Great Awakening because there were all kinds of unusual things. His own wife would, would get into trances, lay faint for days at a time, hours, even days at a time. And Jonathan Edwards said that God did not give us a book of, say, physical anatomy to say when the spirit moves that the, you know, the pulse will go like this and tears will shed your sweat. Or the, No, rather to look at lives being changed. So you're going to have extremes. Mm. I used to tell people uh, during the service, the person sitting next to you, maybe they're shaking. Maybe they're cold. <laughs> the air conditioning is on too high. Maybe they have a fever. They're mm. uncomfortable. Maybe they see someone else shaking, so they think they're supposed to do it. Maybe they're under demonic bondage. Maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting them. Maybe they're weird. <laughs> you don't know. If the thing didn't disrupt the service itself, mm. fine. Mm. But we get to the third point. How do we judge? And Jonathan Edwards looked at basic things. Is the Jesus of the Bible, the virgin-born, eternal Son of God, being exalted? Mm. Are people coming under the authority of the Word of God and coming to love the Word of God? Is there repentance from sin and holiness? Is there love being walked out? So you look at the fruit. Is there a burden for a lost and dying world? If you see these things consistently over a period of time, and this is the the norm, not the Mm. exception. So the exception is the weirdo. The exception Mm. is the weird manifestation. Mm. The norm is people's lives being changed. Then it's the Holy Spirit who did it. So this revival birthed a worldwide missions movement that's Mm. ablaze to this day. It's birthed other ministry schools. It's birthed church planting movements. It's, It's birthed extraordinary things that continue to grow all around the world because the work was from God. And we used to tell people, we don't care if you fall and shake. 
The question is, how do you, how do you walk when you leave this place? Mm. And Steve Hill always used to say, the uh, late evangelist Steve Hill, who was the spark plug mm. in the midst of this, he always used to say the true test of an evangelist ministry is five or 10 years down the line. So wait, we're Pentecostal. Yeah. The Holy Spirit moved <laughs> during water baptisms, the CNN and, 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 and 60 Minutes and all the major media, New York Times, they came and covered it. And they would come on Friday nights in particular to film the water baptisms. Because mm. as people are being baptized, they'd break down weeping, they'd yeah. collapse in the water, they, we'd have to drag them yeah, out of the yeah. water, and that's what we'd get all the film. Yeah, the but dr- our, the our, thing, our thing was, well, the person's life has changed. <laughs> yeah, they were yeah. a crack addict for 20 years, <laughs> got set free here six months ago, and, and now they're making restitution yeah, back yeah. in their community. That's what we look for. Amazing stories. We'll we'll continue this in a moment's time, uh, continuing to talk on the profile today to Michael Brown, uh, who's well known in the USO for his radio show, The Line of Fire. He participates in numerous debates, has written a number of books, including, and we'll talk about this in the next section, A Queer Thing Happened to America. He's often involved in the debate on sexuality, gender, and everything else in the USA. So uh, keep listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, and we'll be back in just a moment's time. It was 50 years ago when young missionary Jackie Pullinger left London and got on a boat to Hong Kong, determined to share God's love with those in need. Miracles followed. Now she's challenging the church to get on with the job. My message is always the same. It's how to get us sure enough of God's love so we can go out and share it with the lost. Read the full interview with this inspiring evangelist exclusively in Premier Christianity magazine. This is very short life and eternal life is forever. We could feel all stupid if we wasted this one. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Good news, we've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second half of today's programme. I'm Justin Briley, and today on The Profile, joined by Michael Brown, a Messianic Jew, well-known out in the States for his radio show, The Line of Fire. And also he's writing as well. He writes for numerous publications, is regularly involved in Christian media, um, has written books like A Queer Thing Happened to America, The Real Kosher Jesus, Authentic Fire, a response to John MacArthur's Strange Fire. We've already talked about that in the first half of today's show. And his latest book is actually titled Donald Trump is Not My Saviour, an evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. Uh, and so uh, if you're interested in today's programme, can I encourage you to go and look at all the other uh, inter- interesting interviews we've got on the podcast of The Profile. Uh, you can find that wherever you get your podcast from or indeed at our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Um, the time flies when we're talking, Michael. There's so many interesting things I want to ask you about. You've written some fascinating books. Um, let's talk about A Queer Thing Happened to America. I think that came out about 2011. 2011. Like it was my 20th book, but I've had three publishers subsequently apologize to me, but nobody would touch it. 
No one would go near it. Not Controversial secular, subject. Not secular publishers, not Christian publishers. The Christian publishers thought the queer word was an insulting word, mm -hmm. but of course I was using it because it was mainstream, mm -hmm. the mainstream for years in, in our culture. Uh, I was an unlikely candidate to get involved with these issues. I don't come out of homosexuality. I've never had a particular burden mm. to reach out to the LGBT community. But in 2004, God began to burden me about the social issues the gay activism that had been so effective in, across so many lines in our culture, from the schools to the courts to the, to the media, Hollywood, etc. And, and I got deeply burdened about the issues. Then God began to break my heart for the people. And, and I just got a clear word in my heart, reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. And an obvious question, okay, why, why me? When I got involved in Jewish apologetics at Nancy and the Rabbis, the materials I needed literally did not exist. Mm. When, when, when people would say to me, you're the, the world's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist, I used to say, yeah, number one among one. <laughs> you know, we, there was a dearth. Now, thankfully, mm. there are more and more people raised up. And, but when I wrote five volumes answering Jewish objections to Jesus, it, it didn't exist. Right. So, and, and here I had the scholarship, the background, I'm Jewish, it made sense. But here, okay, my PhD is in Semitic languages. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. I don't have a family ministry. Mm. And you already have the, you've got the James Dobsons and mm. the Chuck Colsons mm. and, the, and the Tony Perkins. And we've got the political guys. We've got mm. the prophetic voices. Mm. We've got the family ministries. What do you need me for? Mm. And that's when I realized this is the big issue. <laughs> this is going to be the massive moral, cultural, spiritual issue facing the church. You know, evangelicals, we're clear on abortion, pro-life issues, those kind of things. But, but this now was going to be the major issue. Mm. And I realized that in the natural, we lost the battle. In other words, the, the whole generation was lost. In terms of the influence has gone too far, and it started too young. Now, this was already in 2004, 2005, this became totally clear to me, meaning we need divine intervention. So my heart breaks for individuals, they may be living happy lives, they may say, we don't need your Christianity, they may say, we're gay Christians, we're doing just fine, we don't need your compassion. My heart breaks for those who are same-sex attracted, who, who, I, who struggle with gender identity confusion, I really wanna see them find wholeness and new life and repentance in Jesus. At the same time, I see the danger of gay activism. Those who came out of the closet wanna put us in the closet. Fighting for, sincerely for what they believe are their rights and their liberties, ultimately, we are the threat. So how far has it gone? Yeah, uh, was I was going to say, because this is, in 2011, you were writing on the back of what you felt was beginning to manifest in 2004 5. Well, you know, seven years on from 2011, I'm guessing you would say everything I predicted back then has, uh, has sadly, bearing fruit. Unfortunately, even what I began to say back in 2004, 2005, strikingly, Francis Schaeffer was saying the very same things in 1968. 1968, <laughs> before we even got to the Stonewall riots in 69, he already saw what was coming. You have an all-out war on gender distinctions. Male-female distinctions themselves are the enemy. Right now, I was just sent an article about parents with a little boy going to school. He wants to wear a dress. The parents won't let him wear a dress. And about 75% of all kids who struggle with gender identity confusion no longer struggle after puberty. In other words, they, they outgrow mm. it. The less you encourage it, the better outcome most are going to have. Well, they might be taken to social services here in the UK because they won't let, the, his parents mm. won't let their boy go to school wearing a dress. 
Others, first graders, were just given an assignment to write a letter to a prince who wants to marry another prince and basically, or another boy, and saying why it's a good idea and encouraging that. This is an assignment. So, for in you, schools. this has turned into a, a form of indoctrination now that, that basically a particular view of sexuality and gender is now being taught as fact. Oh, yes. A- and we don't have the right to differ. Right. So, the famous couple with the bed and breakfast who mm. said that we only rent out double rooms to, to couples. Well, we're a gay couple. Well, mm. in conscience as Christians, we can't do that. Mm. Sorry. Gay rights trump Christian rights. Uh, the, the godly Christian couple that provided foster care for many kids. Uh, they're asked by, by a gay social worker, what would you do if the child was gay? Well, we'd treat him like every other child. We'd love him like every other child that we take in. Because of their Christian beliefs, they were forbidden by the high court from, from adopting or, or mm. giving foster care for kids. This is an all-out assault on our fundamental beliefs. It's, it's that simple. We must recognize what's going on, and we can't sit this one out. The, the day will come when clergy throughout England will be faced with the choice, will I, you perform a gay marriage or not? So I think there's a lot of Christian leaders in the UK and possibly in America as well for whom this is such a hot potato, they, um, they would rather focus on other stuff, frankly, and not kind of put their head above the parapet and, and potentially get shot down, even though they might, as a, as a matter of fact, take your view, Michael, they say, I'm, I'm, I, it's, it's too much of a, a divisive issue. I'm not going to address it. But is that just as bad as simply affirming it as far as you're concerned? It's not as bad, but, but it's, a, it's a real deception. Number one, Jesus is divisive. Jesus is controversial. If we preach him loudly and clearly enough, we'll get persecuted. We'll get rejected. Secondly, Jesus said, if you save your life, you lose it. And, and this whole thing, okay, well, I won't talk about it now. I'll stay back. And you don't have to be overtly political. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, attack the issue every week. You, you just need to educate your people. Because here's the deal. If you don't do it, if you don't speak about it in your church, you know where your kids or grandkids are learning it? Social media, TV, reality TV, the sex change surgery, the whole bit. So increasingly... In churches across America, pastors and leaders are shocked to find out that their own kids disagree with them on these subjects Mm. and that the daughter or granddaughter just came out as lesbian and wants you to meet her cool girlfriend and things like that. And parents are shocked. Well, they haven't addressed the issues. So what we need to do is say, look, this is part of the cost of following Jesus. We're prophetic people. We're salt and light. We're not nasty. We're not mean-spirited. We want everyone to come into our building and find hope. If if I'm going to preach on social issues, I'm going to do it in such a way that if 15-year-old kid struggling with suicidal thoughts over same-sex attraction, that kid's going to feel love. That kid's going to feel affirmation. But we'll take our stand no matter what. When I interviewed Rob Bell, who you probably are familiar with, um, a few years ago now, um, shortly after he had come out in favor of gay marriage, um, I, I asked him, what made you change your mind? And he simply said, well, I met enough gay people that, that it made sense. And as far as gay relationships and gay marriage he said that that ship has sailed he said this is the new reality um gay marriage that was even before gay marriage had been uh, made law in in the usa so um so a lot of people i think are going to say well what are you going to do about it michael i mean you know this is the way it is now this is the way the culture is so first a word of caution that this was just evidence of rob bell's increasing apostasy that that stance then was an early precursor to his rejection of evangelical faith much more boldly and clearly now saying, yeah, that was a 
past part of his life he doesn't hold to. It was evident which way it was going. It's not irredeemable, but it was evident which way it was going. That, that's one. Number two, this ship sailed all kinds of times. Christianity's been buried all times of times. Uh, G.K. Chesterton pointed out that, that all the ones that buried Christianity are all gone. Uh, so, look, we may go through generations where there's darkness. It, it may be that until Jesus comes that this is the, the rule and that, that the reason that Muslims stayed out of the same-sex battle is because they know polygamy's next. You know, and you may well have polygamy in England. Uh, you know, you have polyamorous relationships, and, and if, if, if the rule is I have the right to marry the one I love, then anything goes. So it, it may well be that we have increasing darkness the, until the, Jesus returns. There are those who would make the case, though, that, okay, um, as long as churches aren't being forced to marry same-sex people, if that's not their view, um, what's wrong with society having that and Christians basically doing what they feel they're called to do in good conscience? Can, can you have, is there a problem with society at large starting to change its mind about sexuality? Of course. First, it doesn't stay where it's just society. We're watching it everywhere. There's pressure on the church. In other words, you don't have a right to be a bigot. You don't have the right to refuse my, my marriage. So there's that constant assault. What we were told is a lie. Maybe it was well intended, but it's ultimately a lie. No, no, no. You can have your beliefs. We just want the right to do this. Mm. Once that happens, it's like, well, you don't have the right to those beliefs because mm. they're bigoted. And now the law says this. So it, it won't stay like that. Okay. It, the, the, the knock will come on your doors, Dr. Al Mohler says. That's one thing. The second thing is, if I care about society, and I believe that this is a fundament, fundamental violation of God's order, then I see this as part of an increasing war on gender distinction, an increasing war of marriage as God intended it. I say it then has more of an impact, bringing more confusion on more children. And now, what's going to be taught in the schools? And, and, and what's going to be the norm on TV and radio and, and movies and, and on and on and on? So, of course, we live in this world. So, if we care about this world, just like rampant no-fault divorce you know, that ultimately affects the church as well. It was, it was a bad move in the society, and then affects the church as well. So the world's going to be the world. Mm. I'm not expecting Hollywood to be godly. I, mm. I'm not expecting uh, birds to swim or fish to fly. So you, you get the world is, is going to be the world, and it's going to have its interest. I'm not trying to impose a theocracy. I simply believe God's ways are best, and God's ways are ways of life, and therefore, I'll continue to advocate for God's ways. And society's always going to be going in the wrong direction. We're in the midst of this world. But if we can shine more light rather than less, all the better. Let's talk about another <laughs> divisive issue, Trump. Yeah. Because um, you like to pick your, your books, don't you, Michael? Because your latest one is called Donald Trump is Not My Savior. An evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. Now, um, this is where there's a big divide between the uk and the usa i think because i think a lot of uk christians who are evangelical leaders and so on they they shake their head in confusion at the number of evangelical leaders who have come out in support of yeah. donald trump because well as they see it you've got um a man who has had affairs with porn stars uses profane language has some kind of a narcissistic personality uh, whose own understanding of christian beliefs and um, it's more or less biblically illiterate and they go why on earth are you supporting and championing this man. So why do you support this yeah, president? Yeah, so it's a hotly debated issue in the Church of America as well. Uh, and and you, if I just post anything on Trump on social media, I'm going to get blasted <laughs> from both sides. Yeah. Uh, first, I, I hotly opposed him in the primaries. I was okay. a Ted Cruz guy. Uh, I thought we needed an anti-establishment guy. I thought we needed a guy that was not just part of the political system. And Cruz, even though he's in it, 
calls out the Washington cartel and so on. And Cruz is pro-life and pro-family and pro-Israel. I thought, he's my man. And Trump, I wrote editorials against. I, I said, we can't trust him. We don't know where he stands today. But I said, I hope I'm wrong. If he ends up mm-hmm. being the, the candidate against Hillary Clinton, I, I hope I'm wrong. All right, now, when it ended up being him versus Hillary, now we knew that Hillary Clinton was radically pro-abortion, was radically pro-LGBT activism, had said things that were disturbing in terms of religious freedoms and things like that. And we, we didn't know what kind of friend she'd be to Israel. And remember, abortion is a massive issue for us as evangelicals in America. Marriage, family, massive mm-hmm. issues for us. And somehow, evangelical leaders who got close to Donald Trump, some of whom were close friends of mine, said to me, Michael, something's going on. Something's going on with this man. He's the most unlikely candidate. And, and two of my colleagues had prophetic words. One who barely even knew who Trump was, just heard the name mm-hmm. as some reality TV star, a narcissist businessman, that God was going to raise up Trump like a bull in a china shop and like a Cyrus-type figure who would be used by God even though he didn't know God. Mm. And in fact, one of my friends was with, a, with Trump in a meeting and felt led to, he felt God led him, go to Isaiah 45 and read it to Trump. He goes, what's in Isaiah 45? And he goes there and it's the Cyrus prophecy and he <laughs> reads it to Trump, though you do not know me, mm. uh, that God's gonna use you and you'll be the 45th president. So Isaiah 45. Mm. So I, I wrote about this. I said, I don't see it. I respect these men. Mm. And I said, God, I don't see it. What it is, is we're getting the best and the worst. My wife, Nancy, voted for him with great reluctance, seeing all the problems. There was this phrase of hold your nose and vote. Yeah, yeah. And and she thought he could divide America. His Mm. personality is going to debase America. Mm. We're going to be worse as a country with him as president. But I feel I have to vote against Hillary. And he does have Mike Pence with him, a good Christian Mm. man. And Mm. I'm going to vote for him, but with great fear. I voted for him. It was enough I heard behind the scenes. The fact that he beat all these, an incredible range of Republican candidates, the best governors Mm. and senators we Mm. had, he beat all of them. There's no way it should have happened. I recognize God's in this. God's in this, and I have to vote for him against Hillary, and I hope he's going to keep his promises that he made to these evangelicals. So all of my greatest hopes have been realized, and all of her greatest fears have been realized. (laughs) That that he is a divine wrecking ball. Right. And he's been, he has exposed the radical left elements of the Democratic Party. He has exposed the political swamp in D.C. He has exposed the radical antagonism, antagonism of the liberal media and Hollywood. And he's also exposed the soft underbelly of the evangelical movement. Uh, Indeed, and, because I think, I think this, this is a, it's kind of like everyone's gone to war on, on every front at this point, because it feels like this is a a crunch point for the evangelical church in America because a lot of what I hear from some parts of, of my friends in, in the USA is um, basically a lot of evangelicals have kind of surrendered um, their, their Christianity in favor of a kind of political power essentially and they'll support Trump at any cost and and they'll basically become the, the religious wing of the Republican yeah. Party or whatever it is. And, and we've done that before. Yeah. The moral majority. So this which, is the danger, isn't it, on the one exactly. side? Exactly. So that's, that's all, in my, all in my book in terms yeah. of that danger and what will we do to have a seat at, at the political table. And, and, and unfortunately, some of us have kind of hitched our very reputation with the president. But see, the media also has this narrative that if you vote for him, that your Christianity depends on No, no, no. Mm. That's the title of my book. Jesus is my savior, not mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. Jesus died for my sins, not Trump. Mm. Jesus has my life and my loyalty. Donald Trump got my vote. Mm. Look, if you, you got, you've got these dangerous dogs loose in your community, all with rabies, 
and they're biting children. Now children are dying of rabies and you need to elect a dog catcher in your community. So you get two guys running. One guy's a really nice guy, happily married, never uses profanity, doesn't drink, never had a, a driving ticket in his life, a really good guy, but he's a lousy dog catcher. This other guy's nasty, he's on his fourth divorce, he's full of profanity, you wouldn't want to be his next door neighbor, but there's no better dog catcher in the world. You hire him to be dog catcher. So, so do, you, do you fundamentally uh, agree then with the recent tweet from Jerry Falwell Jr. who said, uh, conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters like Donald Trump at every level of government because the liberal fascist Dems are playing for keeps and many Republican leaders are a bunch of wimps. Uh, I agree and I disagree. Okay. I agree that it's ugly and every tactic is going to be used against us. Look, assuming Justice Kavanaugh is, is not guilty of the charges brought against him, uh, FBI investigations. Now he's been through seven FBI investigations. Not a single corroborating witnesses. Numerous witnesses saying the testimonies against him are not true. This, if this is accurate, it's one of the ugliest things we've ever seen mm. in our lifetime. Mm. To make the guy into a serial gang rapist mm. when he, he, he works at a soup kitchen, feeds the mm. poor, and coaches girls basketball. You know, an upstanding guy. So the gloves are off. It's, mm. it's ugly. Expect violence in the streets in the days ahead from the radical left. And they're not playing by the games, uh, by, by the rules. I agree with that. But you can be bold without being nasty. Mm -hmm. You can be firm without being a jerk. Mm -hmm. you, you can be strong without calling your former employees a dog or a TV mm -hmm. commentator mm -hmm. psycho. Mm -hmm. So I know his, a lot of his base is energized by that, yeah. but it, it makes us the worst. But, but look, Supreme Court has become so big in America and, 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 and Trump has kept his word. Mm. Religious liberties, he's kept his word. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Mm. He's enacted a lot to, to take pressure off our schools that was forcing them to give way to LGBT activism. I mean, under President Obama, you, you could lose your federal funding if you didn't let a boy who identified as a girl share the girl's shower room and, and play on the girl's sports team. So Trump behind the scenes has, has enacted a lot that's gone against that. He's done a lot of good for our economy and other things. So what I do is this. Mm. I publicly say, I really appreciate that, but I wish you wouldn't say that. Right. I think that's great, but I wish you wouldn't do that. Look, Eric Metaxas wrote a great book on Martin Luther, and he said Luther was Trump on steroids. <laughs> Luther was a world changer. <laughs> Luther yeah. took on the corrupt Catholic Church of his day like, no, you needed a forehead of steel. You needed to be a human bulldozer to do it. But he never had other areas of his life crucified, so he did tremendous damage as well that, that lived on right. uh, in infamy through the centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of like a Trump. The good news is he's still close to the evangelicals. There are ways in which he is changing, and there are other ways where that's probably who he's going to be. Mm. So as evangelicals, we don't hitch our testimony to him. We say, I don't like this, I don't agree with it, but I support him for these various reasons. But there are those who are worried that there are parts of the evangelical church in the USA which, which are almost uh, pledging their allegiance to the flag rather than to Jesus or to Trump rather than to Jesus. And that, that it's, there's a kind of almost patriotic yes, sir. Americanism that somehow gets mixed up with being a good Christian. Yeah, and, it's, and, in, it's in my book. Right, it's and all there. I, 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 wrote, all there. I write about it all the time and I get blasted. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the other day, I, I took issue with President Trump. I said, look, I appreciate what he was doing, but he could rally more support. His base is with him. He mm. could rally more support if he didn't do certain things that were so obnoxious. I get blasted by Christians. Make America great again. And th that's all that mm. matters. I'm mm. thinking, well, what comes first? The Great Commission 
or make America great? Mm -hmm. And can America be great without being good? And can America be good without God? But see, for, it, it may be hard for Brits and Europeans to understand, but our history is such an America. And the whole idea of a Christian nation and birth for religious liberty and the whole revolution for our freedom, mm -hmm. that often patriotism and the kingdom of God are thought of in overlapping terms. And, and that's a fundamental error. America is a country like any other country in that respect, part of this world that needs the kingdom of God. And, and we confuse it a lot with Trump. You're 100% right. Yeah. What, I mean, is it going to get worse before it gets better? What, I mean, it just feels like, you know, you've got all this kind of the, the left-right divide has just seemed to have ramped up. You've got rioting. You've got um, a, a president who, you know, is creating a lot of waves. Over here in Europe, you know, we've got Brexit. We've got all these different issues where, where the world seems to kind of be falling apart almost. Um, I mean, what, what, what do you think this is actually leading somewhere? What do you think is going on here? It is bringing the deep divisions to the surface, unfortunately. President Obama used a lot of identity politics and group versus group, so, so that sowed a lot of division in America. He could have been a unifying force as our first black president, but unfortunately he sowed a lot of division, deep in racial division. Now Trump is exacerbating the divisions, and what we have to do as followers of Jesus is somehow not get caught up on either side of the left or the right as much, although mm. I lean to the right with, with my social views and mm. moral views, but somehow be bringing the gospel first and foremost. But I think it's going to get much worse. I think okay. it's going to get much uglier. And, and my hope is that as it gets uglier, that especially the left with its, with its violence, with its, with its demonstrations, with its refusing to accept the, the election results and that kind of thing, mm. that it will overplay its hand, just like LGBT activism overplays its hand, that, that I do hope it'll bring someone of, of, of an awakening, uh, a consciousness, but without divine intervention, without great awakening, without the gospel sweeping through our nation, I don't know how we get, or, or national calamity, I don't know how we come together. Which kind of brings us back to the, the revival thing, because, you know, we've, I, I grew up in a church that preached revival, but I haven't seen it in my lifetime. And I don't know if you've really seen it in your life. I mean, you've maybe seen something that was approaching it when in some of the places you've been and ministered to. Do you think that kind of thing can happen again in the Western world that we yes. can see... A, yes. an awakening. The, the Brownsville Revival was often called the, the largest local church revival in American history. Uh, over three million people came through the doors cumulatively, people from over 130 nations. And we saw, we saw the supernatural outpouring and how lives can be radically changed and, and the most impossible things you could ever imagine, seeing in front of your own eyes, night mm. after night in terms of transformed lives. We didn't pray for the sick that much, the miracles were more, the changed mm. lives. Uh, so I'm, I'm an eyewitness <laughs> to what God can do. And we have friends and colleagues in the Muslim world seeing the most amazing things and in parts of Latin America and Asia. So will God bypass Europe? Will God bypass America? I don't believe so. Look, uh, England before Wesley, we were chatting about it before, was a dark place. London was a dark city. The pulpits were pretty dark, mm. and, and God sent revival. Revival comes when we're in a bad place. Charles Finney said revival presupposes declension. It presupposes the church is sunk down in a backslidden state. Uh, America, in the, the, the days before the Great Awakening, one pastor said religion lay as it were dying. This is in the colonies, the godly mm. colonies. Mm. Uh, 1800, after the Revolutionary War, we had a tremendous period of backsliding. Chief Justice John Marshall said that the church has fallen too far to ever recover. 1966, Time Magazine, April, 
is God dead? Five years later, June 71, the Jesus Revolution. These are covers, Time Magazine. So we're in a dark place. God is moving. We do have healthy churches, house churches to mega churches, but so much shallow, so much superficial. It's ripe time for awakening. I just don't see enough desperation yet. But if we get to that point of desperation, Mm. I expect a great awakening to come. It's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much. So interesting. Michael Brown, thank you for being my guest on The Profile today. My joy. It's great to have you. I've been Justin Briley. If you want to find out more about Michael and his ministry, askdrbrown.org, where you can find out more about his books and programs and, and various other things. And don't forget that you can read more interesting interviews with people from all walks of life about their Christian faith, life and ministry in Premier Christianity magazine, our sister publication. Go online to premierchristianity.com slash free sample and get the latest edition of the magazine absolutely free. There'll be another interesting interview for you at the same time next week. Don't forget you can find today's program via our podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast from or online at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile.